You are listening to The Adventures of Sariputta and Moggallana. I'm your host, Maurice Sullivan. Sometimes people think of Buddhism as being all about monks, or they think in terms of esoteric practices and special spiritual stuff. But it's really for everyone. The fifth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is right livelihood. And that's relevant to householders and monastics alike. I talked about this on Labor Day at White Sands Buddhist Center, and I'll share that talk with you in a few minutes. But first, I'd like to tell you another of the Jataka tales. In one of his previous existences, the Bodhisattva had been an antelope, and he lived in the forest with two good friends, a woodpecker and a tortoise. One night, the antelope got caught in a trap. He was held fast by a leather snare around his neck. His friends came to help him get free. The tortoise began gnawing at the leather noose. Meanwhile, the woodpecker went to the hunter's home to try to prevent him from coming to check the trap, to slow him down so he wouldn't get there before they could get the antelope free. Before daybreak, with his knife in hand, the hunter started out to see what he had caught in his trap. The woodpecker saw him leaving his home and flew screeching into his face. This frightened the hunter, who couldn't see what kind of screaming creature was attacking him in the dark, so he went back inside to wait for sunrise. When the hunter finally left the house, the woodpecker flew ahead to warn his friends. Just before the hunter arrived to the trap, the tortoise managed to break through the leather, and the antelope leapt into the woods. But the tortoise was exhausted. He was too weakened by his efforts to get away, and so the hunter easily caught him and put him in his bag. Well, the antelope saw this. He allowed the hunter to see him, pretending to be injured, and he lured the hunter into the forest. Once he had led him deep enough into the woods, he suddenly bounded away back to where the tortoise lay in the bag. He quickly tore open the bag and rescued the tortoise. So when the hunter returned, all three friends were gone, safe, and secure. When the Buddha told this story several lifetimes later, he explained that the hunter was an earlier birth of Devadatta, the Buddha's unruly and conniving cousin. The woodpecker and tortoise were earlier births of Sariputta and Moggallana. This is Labor Day weekend, as I'm sure you know. Um, I kind of like Labor Day. I don't get the day off, but uh, and I don't get the weekend off, obviously. But and I have a talk scheduled tomorrow afternoon online and all of that. Um, but I find this particular observance to be interesting and important. And I like to be mindful on Labor Day about the countless ways that each of us benefits from the labors of others. If it weren't for people who do the work, you know, none of us could be here today. There wouldn't be a highway system for me to use to get here. Um, And that's not just because of people who work on road construction, although that's important, but people who labor and then pay taxes and uh, donate to Buddhist temples and people share their labor and their earnings with the poor and with monastics and so on. So, The Buddha understood the importance of this, and he understood the importance of working. A lot of the time we think of Buddhism as being something that's for, you know, that's all about monks and and escaping from society and the material world and stuff. But really without all of that, 
You know, none of this could be here. And the Buddha knew this. Uh, he knew the importance of working in a society and for a society and how all of our efforts make, uh, to make a living actually affect all of us, not just you, not just your customers, and not just if you're a business owner or manager, the people who work for you, enable you to serve your com company's mission and things like that, but everyone attached by any, any livelihood is affected by that livelihood. So there's this thing that happens in business school, it actually began sometime after I got my MBA, but we weren't really talking about this very much back in the 80s when I was there. But the idea is that companies exist not just to benefit owners, stockholders, but the larger view is that companies also have stakeholders and you have to take all of that into account. So there are a lot of people who have a stake in any given company's success or failure. And so now a lot of managers don't just talk about stockholders, but stakeholders. And that includes a lot of beings. And the Buddha knew this and talked about this 2000, more than 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. So as usual, he was way ahead of the curve. So a lot of people come to Buddhism wanting special practices like meditation that can lead to spiritual freedom. And that's great, meditating and attending services like this one here, reciting sutras like we did, those are all good things to do and they help us to train our minds and our hearts and guide our way along our spiritual path. But there's a lot more to spiritual life than just going to religious services on a Sunday morning. It's interesting, I interviewed a woman recently for my podcast and she's a writer um, and, and um, I had asked her to tell me about her spiritual life. And she said, you know, I thought about that. It's actually a very difficult question because it's hard for me to separate in my mind when I'm practicing spirituality because it's interwoven into everything. And that really pleased me. Your life is your spiritual path. So our relationship to one another and even seemingly mundane tasks like washing the dishes or mowing the lawn are a part of our spiritual life. There's a very famous koan where a monk is coming to a teacher for the first instruction and he's asking very complicated questions about Zen and the teacher goes, have you eaten your rice? And he says, yes. And the teacher says, then wash out your bowl. And that's, that's the practice. You know, live your life, but live it really attentively. And that means even when you're going to work and, you know, commuting and all of those things, that's all part of your spiritual life. And if you're a monk or a minister or something like that, that's easy to see. It can be a little bit less obvious and maybe harder to know how to live spiritually when you have to deal with things like mortgages and jobs. But Buddhism is a comprehensive spiritual program. The Buddha advised everyone, not just monks, and he meant for people who have to go to work every day to realize the fruits of spiritual practice also. So the fifth factor of the Eightfold Path is right livelihood. So most of us probably think of livelihood in terms of our career. What do we do for a living? What's our job? But if we look a little bit deeper in that, the idea of livelihood expands a lot, and it really includes a lot of things besides 
whether we consider ourselves a fireman or a farmer, or a truck driver or a banker or whatever. The word livelihood more broadly really refers to our way of life. It's our means of securing the necessities of food and water and shelter and stuff, but it's also the activities that enable us to survive through our lives. And so over a period of time, and that involves those necessities, of course, but it also involves things like healthcare and the things we need in order to do our jobs. If you're a farmer, you need farm equipment, if, so on. So it expands to include what we do in order to afford what we need to maintain our lives on a sustainable basis with some personal dignity. And so that means that our livelihood becomes interconnected with the livelihoods of others and is dependent on the availability of the resources that our jobs require and all of that. So for instance, during the Dust Bowl that occurred in parts of the US during the 1930s, a lot of farmers lost their livelihoods because their fields could no longer support their crops. But you don't have to look at something that catastrophic to see how interdependent our lives and our livelihoods are with the rest of our context. You might be, where's Dr. Chow? I'm Okay, so he's a doctor. You, that's okay, you can stay back there, you don't have to come. <laughs> no, I'm just gonna talk about, I'm gonna talk about you. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a doctor and he's a very good doctor, but he knows that you might be the best physician in the world, but you can't do that if there aren't roads that connect you and your patients to one another. Or if nobody has any money to pay for health insurance or pay doctors or things like that, or at least, you know, chickens to trade and stuff like that. So we're all interconnected. We talk about interdependency sometimes like it's a, it's a big sort of mystical concept, which it is but it also means that we're all connected to each other. We're all related to each other. My karma is related to your karma, which is related to her karma and so on. So whether he was instructing a monk or a householder, the Buddhist teachings were based on the same foundation, the middle way, the noble eightfold path. That first teaching he laid out in the deer park in Sarnath near, near Varanasi in India after his awakening. So probably most of you know about the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. They have to do with living wisely. And the last three have to do with developing the mind. Somebody was asked, one of the new people was asked, why are you here? Well, I wanted to learn how to meditate. So that's, that's the last three factors of the Eightfold Path. But the middle ones, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, have to do with living in a way that is compassionate and that takes into account the needs of those around us. And so the factors of the Eightfold Path, none of them stand alone. They all interconnect. So you have to have some wisdom, some discernment to know whether your livelihood is right livelihood or not. You need right efforts to abandon wrong livelihood and enter into right livelihood. You need right mindfulness to see as you live your life day to day, whether you're living in a way that's compassionate or not. So mostly the Buddha left it up to us to figure out if we're living with by right livelihood or not. We can mainly see if our livelihood keeps in mind our commitment 
to avoid harming ourselves and others in body, speech, or mind. So when a Buddhist commits to the path, when you say, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a Buddhist and that's really what I wanna do, we set our mind on developing virtues like generosity and setting aside harmful action. And so generally with right livelihood, you should be able to do your job without deviating from those precepts. The Buddha gave some examples of wrong livelihood. People ask me about this quite a bit. What's wrong livelihood? What is right livelihood? And so, for example, he said trading in weapons and slaves, animals for slaughter, and making and selling intoxicants and, and poisons and things like that. But you have to use your judgment about statements like that. Nothing in Buddhism is really kind of etched in stone. There's no, oh no, you can't do this. There's no real sort of, there's a lot of gray areas. For example, if you're a bacteria and a doctor gives someone else medicine to kill you, well, that medicine is a poison. But if you're the person taking the medicine, you know, that's something that's gonna save your life maybe. And so the doctor's intention is to preserve life, not to kill. And so that's right livelihood. There's a couple of stories that give us a pretty good idea about what kind of things the Buddha wanted us to be mindful about. In one, he's talking to an actor uh, who was, it was a man named Talaputta, who was the head of a big troupe of actors, which was almost kind of like a religious thing back then. You know, theater and acting sort of has its roots in, in religious ritual. So this uh, actor comes to see the Buddha and, and he asks him, he says, according to the ancient teaching lineage of actors, when an actor on stage makes people laugh and gives them delight, then after death, he's reborn in the heaven of laughing devas. What do you say about that? And the Buddha said, don't ask. So when the Buddha said, don't ask, that's usually because you're not gonna like the answer. <laughs> <laughs> But, the, but Talaputta asks again and then again, and so the Buddha says, okay, since you asked me three times, you must really want to know what I think, so I'll tell you. And then he says, if an actor has set his mind on inflaming the passions, the angers, and delusions of people who are already impassioned, angry, and deluded, then he'll reborn in the hell of laughter, meaning you'll be reborn in a place where people laugh at you, not with you. And he had a similar exchange with the leader of an army who believes that warriors who die in battle will re be reborn in a special heaven. And the Buddha says, well, if you go to work ho hoping to kill someone, you know, that's a bad thing. And that's gonna lead to a bad place. Now that doesn't mean that you can't be an actor or a soldier, but your intention should be to do good, not to explore, exploit your position to cause harm. So if you're a soldier, you're going to defend, you're going to protect. If you're an actor, you know, think about how you live your life in a good way. So he's saying that there's a relationship between livelihood and the mind. If you're going to do your job intent on causing harm or not caring about harm you might cause someone, then that's not gonna to lead to a good end for you. Uh, doing your job involves, you know, catering to people's revenge fantasies and things like that. That's, that's going to affect your mind and the minds of others 
And those are intentional actions and they have consequences. The Buddha also said that we should be honest in our dealings with one another. We shouldn't have to hide our true motives to make money. Our work life shouldn't be characterized by rapacity for gain upon gain, is the words used. In other words, we should live a life of purpose that's greater than just to make money and more money. There's nothing wrong with being prosperous, nothing wrong with having a good income, but it should serve a higher purpose than that. The Buddha encouraged lay people to make money and build wealth, but also use the wealth wisely. He said we should be careful not to squander our money or lose our money. We should care for ourselves and our families and then help out friends and relatives and the needy and the spiritual community. If you're an employer, anybody an employer in here? The Buddha said you should provide health insurance. Although it wasn't quite those terms, but you should look after, you should look after the health of your employees and give them adequate compensation. So it's really interesting that, you know, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha was talking about the same kind of stuff that we talk about these days when we talk about employment and livelihood and that kind of stuff. Today, though, our world is very, very complicated and our lives are very interdependent with a lot of other factors. And interdependency has always been a thing since the, you know, the dawn of creation. But, you know, we're so connected so quickly now, it's very easy to have an impact on someone else or on other beings in the world that we live in. So if what we do harms the world that supports our livelihood, or harms the world that supports the livelihood of others, then we should look carefully at that and see how we could change what we do. There's a concept these days called sustainable livelihood that I think would be very much in line with what the Buddha taught. And the idea is that we find a way to live that has everything needed to be sustained and resilient. In other words, we can recover from stress and shock. And then there's a lot of things that you can do if you've got your basic needs covered and all of that kind of stuff to contribute to the world. Volunteering is part of a livelihood. You know, there's people who come down here every week and work in the gardens out there and that kind of thing. And that is part of right livelihood, even though you're not getting a paycheck for it. You're helping to make the world that you live in. And I think if you look at your livelihood in that sense, what I do to make a living helps to create the world that I live in, then I think your livelihood will be a right one. So um, anyway, I, I hope that this has given you something to think about on Labor Day tomorrow. If you're, uh, if you're a laborer, then my gratitude to you and everyone else's gratitude to you. Um, if you're not a laborer, my gratitude to you and everyone else, because we're all interconnected. There's no such thing as not being a part of the system. So thank you very much for your attention. Thanks again for joining me for episode 27 of The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogolana. I hope you enjoyed the story of the three animal friends, and I hope the discussion of right livelihood gave you some ideas about your own livelihood. Speaking of livelihoods, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash morris-sullivan and click on the support button. I appreciate your kindness. Now go save the world. Mm -hmm.